Thank you, Richard, for those kind words and for the always perceptive words of the people of Eastminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, I see a few of them out here today who may have been the ones who jotted those down. You never know. Now, just out of curiosity, that great Presbyterian question about the doctrine of election. Who's in and who's not? And I have over the years found a way of quickly getting to that uh, answer, and it is this. How many of your churches participate in the Super Bowl of caring? Raise your hand. Okay, congratulations. You're in. To laugh together at the body of Christ is a great thing. Because we need humor in life. And we need humor even as we walk through God's Word especially when we read and deal with passages like today's, that despite the majesty of the dancers, the words hit us like a ton of bricks. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For to find your life is to lose it. Instead, lose your life that you might find it. So I ask, what is it or who is it that you love most of all? Who or what is it that you love most of all? Is it your wealth or your health or your status? Is it your house or your cottage? Is it your children or your parents? Is it your spouse or is it yourself? Who or what do you love most in all of life? It's a hard question, but that is the question that's just beneath these words of Jesus, isn't it? Flipping it around, we can think about it from the other side. Focusing too much on our health makes us what? Obsessed or paranoid. Too much devotion to wealth means we lose, we neglect our health or our family or our God when we're so focused on money. If we parents focus too much on our children, we risk inadvertently creating self-centered children even as we grow distant from our spouses. And what is it you call somebody who thinks all the time about themselves and what they want and their opinions most of all? We call them selfish, don't we? Have you ever known someone who spent so much thought and energy in pursuit of finding himself or herself that paradoxically they became more lost? It can happen to any of us. To any of us. You see, I think we are the people Jesus is referring to when he says, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their lives for mine sake will find it. These two sentences I submit to you 
are as profound as any two sentences that we could be thinking about on these days of the 21st century as a nation and as a church. That these questions are as profound as any that we could think about during these days. What does it look like to lose our life for Jesus' sake and yet to find it? John McCall, some of you know, is a Duke and Princeton-trained pastor who left a, a good church, a good salary, a good situation to move halfway around the world to live in a second-floor apartment of seminary housing to help train seminarians and young pastors in Taiwan. Our family got to visit with John last summer there in Taiwan, and as we could see, and as he as much said, he has found himself by giving himself, by losing himself to God in that place. Here at home, a friend of mine who wrestled with addiction again and again and again and again finally realized that in order to find his life, he would have to lose his life, give his life to God, because he was going to lose the battle otherwise. Still another who thought that her role was to serve her children day in and day out, found indeed that her role was not to serve her children so much that they became ever more dependent on her, but instead to love her children enough that she let them learn to be responsible and to contribute beyond themselves to find out that life is not about them. Each of these people, in yielding their lives to Jesus Christ, ended up finding richer, fuller lives. Who or what do you put first in your life? What does your calendar say? What does your checkbook say? I was in college when I read about the concept called wellness, a way of looking at life from a balanced perspective. It appeared to me I liked the concept enough that I came up with a little acronym that I decided I wanted to use, SMEPS. SMEPS. That I would look at my life spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, and socially. And at first, as I thought about that, I thought of them, if you will, as sort of five, five silos that I could reflect on my life and say, how am I doing? Social life sometimes had some real challenges. God smiled on me, gave me Nancy, my wife. I'm blessed. But then I got to thinking about it. Of those five, if they're all equal, one of them has to be stronger. One of them has to be the rudder that guides the ship. Because after all, isn't it God who gives us the minds with which we think? Isn't it God who gives us our emotions, our ability to understand and to empathize? Isn't it God who gives us our physical bodies? Isn't it God who creates us in community? That gives us relationships with other people? Indeed, don't we believe that God is sovereign as good Presbyterians over all of life? That God needs to be the rudder, the guide for all of life. And that only in yielding ourselves to the living God and Jesus Christ do we find the perspective 
that we need for living all of life. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? In today's pivotal chapter from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' followers then and we readers now go from observing and watching and being amazed by Jesus to being challenged by him. To help understand today's passage, I want to invite you to join me in sort of a high-altitude tour of this portion of Matthew's Gospel. The first ten chapters can be understood in four sections. The first section of Matthew's Gospels, chapters 1 through 4, there we see who Jesus is, where he's from. We have the genealogy of Jesus, that he comes from Abraham and David. We have his miraculous birth. We have his baptism. We have him tempted in the wilderness and the call of the twelve. That's the first section. The second section of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7, I think are the one of the most remarkable blocks of teaching in human history. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, more familiarly known as Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus stands and teaches. And he talks to us with extraordinary wisdom about what it is to love others. He talks with us about how to deal with anxiety. He talks to us about generosity and about selflessness. He gives us there the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. The third section of those first ten chapters, chapters 8 and 9, immediately after that remarkable teaching, Jesus goes into action. Chapters 8 and 9 are non-stop action. Ten miracles that Jesus performs back to back to back to back. He casts out demons. He heals both a boy and Peter's mother-in-law of physical illness. He helps one who cannot walk get up and go. He helps one that cannot speak find his voice. He helps one that cannot see learn to see. And so after nine chapters, absolutely the twelve, but any who are there, have seen Jesus in action. They have heard the power of his teaching. They've seen the congruity of the two, and they know where he is from. And that gets us to this fourth section, which is where chapter 10 is, today's passage. And right about now, the disciples are feeling good about themselves that they've gotten in on something special, that this guy is something special because they've seen the miracles, they've heard the teaching, and there's a chance that they know about where Jesus is from. And at that moment in chapter 10, as it opens, we see Jesus pivot. We see Jesus pivot like LeBron James coming at you, and you're the only thing between him and the basket. That's the kind of intensity that Jesus has for his disciples, for his followers, right here in chapter 10. You see, I share that, the first nine chapters where we get to know Jesus, where we hear his teaching, where we see him in action, because there it is so abundantly clear that he is not like the others, that he is indeed the Messiah of God. But then he says to us here in chapter 10, you've got to understand people. I bring a new, radical, revolutionary way where ultimate commitment to me is required even more than love of parent or in-law or child. 
And the disciples surely said, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. But they also knew that this Jesus brings life. Because they had seen it again and again, and they had heard it again and again, and they knew from where he was from. So seeing all of that, today's passage, chapter 10, it opens with the disciples and the other followers. They're feeling good. Then come these tough words. But before we disregard them, I want you to ask yourself, are you striving to obtain or to achieve the life Teased by all the pictures, the posts, the positions, the purchases that connote it, are you tempting to mimic what you see, trusting it is as good as portrayed? Is that where you put your time and energy? And if, upon hearing what I just said, you're sitting up straight because that materialistic playing to the crowd stuff is so not you, aren't you just as guilty, prideful that you are not a sinner like them? Oh, the danger on the right and the left when our theology is so solid, so sound, and so sealed that it leaves no room for God to be God. All the while, all the while, Jesus says, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake We'll find it. We'll find it. Are you willing to yield? Are you willing to give your life yet again to the one who is the way and the truth and the life? To love God more than any other children and parents, spouses, or self? Are you? Am I? Even at a cost. 20 years ago, I had the privilege of a front row seat with the Super Bowl of Caring. All across the country on Super Bowl Sunday, churches, young people would ask people to drop a dollar in the soup pot as they left services. The young people would stand there with the soup pots, and as people walked out, they'd put a dollar or two in the soup pot, and all the money would go to a soup kitchen or food bank that they chose. And then on that day, we would ask everybody to call and report their totals so that we could determine the aggregate across the country. It was a toll-free number. A local business let us set up a phone bank. There were 60 telephone lines. Young people from the community came in and answered the phones. It was a blast. Here was a call from a church in South Florida. Here was a call from a church in North Dakota. So anyway, the young people had been told if they had any questions, they were to raise their hand. So we went on, and the phone calls would pour in, a thousand phone calls an hour. It was a blast. After a while, one young man raised his hand and pointed at me and said, come over here. So I went over there, and he said, "Uh, this fellow wants to talk with you. So I said, okay. So I picked up the phone, and I spoke with him. was a fellow from a little town called Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. Saudi Daisy's, uh, I guess, a suburb just north of Chattanooga. And this young fellow was so excited. That little church of 63 members had collected $4,600. 
Now, preachers aren't real good at math, but normally 63 people, a dollar each, would be about $63. I said, what did you do? That's fantastic. He said, well, we heard about it. We thought it was a neat idea, so we asked all the other, our friends, to get all their churches to do it, and they did it. And then he said, then we went to Walmart, and we said, Walmart, can we stand out front with the soup pots on the Saturday before the Super Bowl and ask people to give? And Walmart said, yes. And then he said, we asked Walmart, Walmart, will you match all the money we raise? Like you, I was about to say, now you're overreaching, young man. Before I had the chance to share my wisdom, he said, Walmart said yes. So we raised $2,300. Walmart matched it $4,600. Man. So I hung up the phone. Then as the week moves on, people continue to call in, sort of like Presbyterians coming to church. A lot of people are late. So anyway, uh, so about two days later, it's Tuesday. The phone rings again. Our 1-800 number rings again. It's him again. This young fellow is so excited. And it's clear that he's very young and he's been the organizer of all this and he explained a little bit more about what he did and how he did it was fantastic. So we're getting to know each other. I know his name, he knows my name. A couple days after that, he calls again. Now it's Thursday. It's still a toll-free number. Now it's toll-free for him, it's not toll-free for me. I gotta raise the money for it. So a little piece of me is thinking, all right, young fella, And it was during that conversation with Danny that we talked and he said, Brad, I want to tell you something. Two years ago, I was playing softball on the church softball team. I'm 20 years old. And somebody hit a ball to the outfield and I was in the outfield and I ran for it and so too did one of my teammates. And we collided. And I've not been able to use my arms or my legs since. And I want you to know there have been times when I have wondered, God, why am I still around? God, why am I still around? But organizing this has shown me that God can still use me. And I hung up the phone and I thought, I thought we were just raising a few dollars to feed the hungry, raising the visibility, planting a few seeds in the hearts of young people to teach them that God could use a difference. But God in God's way was using it far greater. On a side note, I had been wrestling with whether I was supposed to do Super Bowl full time. That phone call helped me have the clarity that I needed. Well, I told that story over the next five years or so. We were able to get a little bit of staff. Super Bowl grew nicely. About five years later, uh, one of my colleagues, a woman named Diane, who helped with communications, said, Brad, you tell that story. I'd like to try to track that fellow down and to talk with him and interview him. What do you think of that? I said, well, that's fine. Go for it. She did, and she did. And she found out that what he had done is that that young man had gone back to college and he had finished college. Not only had he gone back to college and finished college, but he got a degree in counseling and he was serving at a a rehabilitation center for people who have experienced traumatic spinal injuries. And he was counseling, walking with others who had experienced exactly what he had experienced. 
Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me. When you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Now, I pray that neither you nor I have to go through the trauma that that young man has experienced. But I also pray that you and I as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and all of us as the body of Christ, will take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ, that we will find ourselves by losing ourselves to our God. Will you? Will you do it? Will you love him more than any other? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.